How can the Homeland Security Department possibly vet 40,000 people coming to the United States every day to spot the possible security threats? Until recently, it couldn't. Or it took so long, a terrorist could already have moved in. My next guest developed in record time and on a shoestring budget a modern information system that lets Customs and Border Protection easily screen bad visa applications. She's technical director in the Homeland Security Department's Office of Intelligence and Analysis, and she's also a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Lori Vizlaki joins me now. Ms. Vizlaki, good to have you on. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, tell us what you did here exactly and what problem it was you were solving. Sure. So the the National Vetting Center, it it exists under the Department of Homeland Security, and um, it's uh, an essential and, and frankly, as you noted, a a long-awaited solution for for the government to improve its information sharing for the vetting of individuals who are seeking travel or, or immigration benefits to come to the U.S. Unfortunately, the information sharing that underpins the the vetting support has historically been very manual and and time-consuming, inconsistently applied across different programs where you might have some agencies supporting one program but not another. Um, It's been pretty ad hoc as the classified support from the intelligence community was usually formed out of um, one-off relationships or arrangements, and it's been heavily focused on counterterrorism threats versus taking what we consider to be uh, an all-threats view in which we'd want to expand uh, to look at threat actors associated with other other threats like transnational organized crime, counterintelligence, uh, and so on. So the government was missing kind of that single coordinating entity to address these issues and ensure that you know, those who are responsible for reviewing applicants uh, who are looking for entry to the U.S., you know, making sure that they have the information they need when they need it uh, from those national security partners and uh, the intel community. So the NBC was created to solve these problems. And when we talk about the National Vetting Center, um, it's not like a a brick-and-mortar center that you might think of um, in terms of like the Terrorist Screening Center or National Counterterrorism Center. Um, It's very much like a a virtual uh, and technical solution here uh, where we provide a technology platform and process that allows for a a coordinated and and comprehensive review of the information that's associated with that applicant that's applying for the, you know, travel to come here, immigration benefit. Sure. Um, So we... It sounds like you had to bring together quite a number of databases and and Mm -hmm. normalize them so that they could be accessed in one place. Was that the chief challenge here? Yes, absolutely. Uh, The systems integration work that we do is incredibly complex. It ends up being at least six different agencies uh, that are involved, more for some of the other programs that we're working. And so, as you can imagine, each of those are coming to the table with different systems, different technology, different resourcing that you know they can bring to bear, different agency cultures that they're bringing forward, different historical perspectives. And so getting everyone kind of moving together, building consensus is you know quite a feat in and of itself. And you know I've been really proud of our teams and how they've been able to come together to develop new capabilities to make smart process and design decisions and 
and do so under some really high pressure situations where the administration is is looking to us to achieve its goals on on their timelines, like you mentioned before uh, at the intro of this being stood up in a really short amount of time. And Mm -hmm. in supporting this mission, how did you get this done? Did you do programming within the team itself? Did you have contractor support? And was it done in an agile way so that the people that were going to use the system could kind of keep abreast of what you were doing step by step? Yep, absolutely. So we do have a mix of contract support and federal employees supporting it. And so when we first went live, we had to really assess, you know, what we had available to us at the time. Since we had to deploy this in such a short time frame, we didn't necessarily want to start from scratch or kind of recreate the wheel. And so we had to kind of look across the capabilities that already existed in our community and see what could be easily adapted or modified to support this. And throughout that, kind of always keeping a, an eye on the future, right? Like we had some very short-term deadlines that we needed to deliver on, but always in our design decisions, making sure that we weren't boxing ourselves in, into a corner where there'd be something that like we couldn't undo in the future for a different program. So always trying to keep an eye on that like reuse and reusability and just bringing forward that that thought diversity, making sure that we're accounting for different scenarios and different edge cases so that in the end, we're ultimately providing to those customers a robust solution that meets their needs. We're speaking with Lori Vislocki. She's technical director in the DHS Office of Intelligence and Analysis and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. And how did you come to this work? Your technical director is your title now, and you're talking about agile development and contractor support, yet you were actually an intelligence analyst, and you looked at al-Qaeda and things like that before. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. It's not something that I ever really planned for myself, but uh, I guess looking back, it actually, piecing it together makes makes quite a bit of sense. And so, as you noticed, I was uh, working as an intel analyst, looking at al-Qaeda and other Pakistan-based militant groups. But in that role, I wasn't just looking at, you know, their capabilities overseas. I was really looking at it through the lens of, you know, how could they exploit our travel and immigration systems to gain entry or like carry out an attack here in the homeland? Um, so I was regularly working with the department's travel and immigration databases. And so as an analyst, I knew firsthand the, the pain points or the limitations that occur because the department has collected and stored all of its data on the individuals that it encounters, whether it's travelers or visa applicants. You know, that all lives on, on one network, an unclassified network. And we didn't have a systematic way to compare it against foreign intelligence information that our Intel community partners had collected and maintained on the classified information. So it was, it's not just that you had information stovepipes in different databases. It lived on completely different infrastructure on completely separate networks. And so I actually ended up transitioning and getting involved in some of the department's big data initiatives that that were aimed at building out new technology to to bridge that gap and overcome that problem so that we could make it easier to compare the unclassified with the classified information. I actually converted to federal service in 2015. Prior to that, I was working as a consultant for DHS INA and ended up converting to have some decision-making authority and, you know, be able to take ownership of those big data initiatives in order to drive them forward. So when the department started its early conversations around implementing the vetting center, 
I actually had already been piloting capabilities that were candidates for those technical solutions. You know, it made for a natural and really organic partnership with the work that I'd been doing at DHS-INA and, and actually um, in coordination with Customs and Border Protection, which you know now administers the vetting center on behalf of the department and, and the U.S. government. I guess it's really been like a, a labor of love. You know, I'm, I'm a problem solver by nature, and there's always some new challenge, some new puzzle to figure out. So been really satisfying and fulfilling right. to crunch through that. And we should point out that you are 35 years old, and so in many ways you are punching above your age, so to speak, because there are lots of CIOs that have tried to do that systems integration job, and sometimes in five years they can't get it finished. So what's the secret here? <laughs> um, well, I think the main thing that I bring to the table is you know, my ability to translate the, the complex mission policy and, and legal requirements into a real world tech solution. And so that's where my, my background as an analyst really plays to my strengths here. So, you know, in my experience, those different functional teams are speaking different language and, and struggle to speak one another. So I'm able to sit down with our customers, you know, the operators and the lawyers and the privacy professionals. And just given that experience I've had up until now, I can speak to each of them in their own language and then, you know, take their input and come up with a, a technical solution that, that satisfies all of them. Lori Vizlaki is Technical Director in the DHS Office of Intelligence Analysis and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals Program. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. It's great to have been here. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual, actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. 
Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day and I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you use to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was... It was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and... Um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, 
from C to C-suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And and, uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, During my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. A financial plan isn't just about money. It's about what matters most to you, like protecting your family, supporting your community, and building a legacy for future generations. At Northwestern Mutual, we start with a conversation about the life you want to live now and years from now. Whether you're paying down debt, saving for college, or planning for retirement, we have an eye on your bigger picture. Get access to our financial expertise at harlem.nm.com. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, headquartered in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.